Welcome to episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101, the foundations of our Catholic faith. These episodes originally premiered on YouTube. You can find the original video linked in the description to this episode, as well as a discussion guide for your benefit and whoever you might be listening with. A friendly reminder and invitation to please, if you have not yet done so, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. It's such a great way to get this podcast out there and for you to share it with others. But remember, the highest compliment you could pay this podcast and myself is to share this episode or any episode on social media. And you can do that by simply posting it on your story or tagging us in a post. At Mana Food for Thought is our Instagram handle. At Mana F4T is our Twitter and our Facebook page is just Mana Food for Thought. You can find all of that on our website, manafoodforthought.com, as well as all of our previous content. And if you'd like to become a financial sponsor for as little as $1 a month, you can do that by clicking on the Patreon tab on our website. If you have not yet done so, I really want to invite you to check out our friends at Thrive Coffee. It's Coffee with a Mission. Their website is drinkthrive.org, and they are a nonprofit craft coffee roaster in Richmond, Virginia. They use coffee to create careers and training opportunities for individuals with disabilities. Uh, they ship nationwide. Their beans are locally roasted in small batches. They make blends, and three bags sold pays for one hour of work for their differently abled employees. So go to drinkthrive.org, buy a few bags, and if you use promo code MANA, M-A-N-N-A, at checkout, you will get 15% off your first order. With that being said, enjoy the next installment in episode 101, a 34-part episode on Catholicism 101. Enjoy. If you know me well, you know that I freak out whenever I see nuns or religious sisters in their habits, especially when you see them in unexpected places. Like you expect them to see them in churches and Catholic schools, but I once saw a nun at a gas station and I, it was like it was my birthday. I was just so excited because there's something about that way of life, that radical service for Jesus that's so attractive, so joyful, and I can't get enough of it. And I think a lot of people share that sentiment. I think priests can have the same effect on people, especially for non-Catholics. When they see that Roman collar, they are hopefully at least meant to feel a sense of comfort and peace, or at least know that they're in the presence of a person who they know who they are and they know what they stand for. I've actually heard of a couple people who are non-Catholics who were getting on a plane and they were nervous about flying. This is different people at different times. And both of them reported that um, at one point they saw um, a Catholic priest come on board and one of them even said he sat next to them. And immediately they were like, well, nothing can happen now, you know, because there's this sense that, you know, they, they recognize even if they're not Catholic, they give their life in service of the church. And they're meant to constantly help us to be back in right relationship with God. And as Catholics, we know that, and that's why we rejoice in the symbol and the person of the priest, because their job is to bring us into communion with God and to one another, to serve. And so there are actually two sacraments that are called the sacraments at the service of communion, which means they're primarily directed to the service of others for our communion, our community, our unity. One of those is called the sacrament of holy orders. And that is a sacrament where, where men are ordained into the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus was our savior, obviously. He died for our sins. But during his life, he also often appeared in the synagogue. And he assumed the role as a priestly teacher, bringing a new authority, which is the authority of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus came to Nazareth, 
where he had grown up and went according to his custom into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke highly of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. So Jesus exercises his authority in the posture of a teacher or a priestly office. And as our risen Lord, Jesus remains our high priest. There is only one priest and only one priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It says that in Hebrews, he is always able to save those who approach God through him since he lives forever to make intercession for them. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, higher than the heavens. And that priesthood actually goes way back before Christ himself in the Old Testament. The first priest we hear about is Melchizedek, and he offered sacrifices of bread and wine, sound familiar, on behalf of Abraham in Genesis 14. And that was as far back as potentially 2,000 years before Christ. And that's commemorated in the Psalms. Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and will not waver. You are a priest forever in the manner of Melchizedek. God's promises did not waver. And about 700 years later, in 1300 BC, he established the sacrificial meal of the Passover through Moses, which was again a meal of wine and unleavened bread and a sacrificial lamb. Sound familiar? Then he chose Moses' brother Aaron and his sons to be the priests to the community. And he designated one of the 12 tribes of the Hebrews, the tribe of Levi, for liturgical service in Exodus 28. Those priests and Levites, they eventually served in the temple in Jerusalem when it was built around 950 BC. That was where they made sacrifices in service of the people, in communion, to bring the people into communion with God. The problem, however, was the priests and the Levites, they could not provide the fullness of communion, the fullness of salvation or sanctification for the people, until their priesthood found its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's because he became not only the priest offering the sacrifice, but he also became the sacrifice itself, the Lamb of God. All of us who are baptized in Christ, um, were baptized, share in Christ's priesthood. We are all called, all of us, called kingdom priests. And we share in something that's called the common priesthood of the faithful, which means that we are called to bring the gospel and love of Jesus to the world. However, there are also ministerial priests who share this through the sacrament of holy orders in a special way as ordained ministers. They exercise the priesthood of Jesus by acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, when they confer the sacraments. It's not by their power or ability, but by the power and presence of Jesus in them, working through them as vessels that we receive the sacraments. That is the difference. Ordained priests have a sacred power for the service of the rest of us. That's what it says in the Catechism in paragraph 1538. It confers a gift of the Holy Spirit that permits the exercise of a sacred power, which can come only from Christ himself through his church. And they're talking about ordination there. Those priests and, and bishops and deacons, they exercise their service to the church by teaching, 
by divine worship and by governance. So making sure things are running well. So teaching, they share truth. Worship, they share beauty. And governance, they share goodness and make sure goodness is being shared. This does not preserve them, however, from weakness or sin. They still sin. They make mistakes. They go to confession. The Pope goes to confession regularly. But the Holy Spirit still guarantees that their sin and their weakness does not impede the effectiveness of the sacraments and the graces that we receive in them. So remember, a sacrament is a visible sign instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church to give grace. <clears throat> so the visible sign of the priesthood is the laying on of hands. And that is always done by a bishop. Only a bishop can give the sacrament of holy orders. He is the only one who can ordain other men. However, there are three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders, kind of like degrees in a black belt. Um, and those are bishops, priests, and deacons. Each one of which we see in the Bible as part of the structure of the early church, and each one of which continues today in the Catholic Church. So first of all, the highest degree is the bishop. And the word bishop comes from the word episkopos, which means overseer. We see some instructions for bishops in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he says, This saying is trustworthy. Whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. And then there's a list of instructions on what makes a good bishop. Bishops form groups called colleges. And um, those are, they're not like universities. They're groups for different states or countries. And they all operate in union with one another under the authority of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Bishops are in charge of a diocese, which is like a county or an area, and they're responsible for every soul in that area, Catholic and non-Catholic. They take a vow of chastity, they can administer all seven sacraments, and they are the highest degree, like I said, of holy orders. They are our modern-day apostles. They trace their ordination all the way back to one of the original twelve. And they have the authority to give faculties or permissions to all of the priests and deacons in their diocese to exercise their office. They all need the bishop's permission. A bishop has to be at least 35 years old to be a bishop, and they have to have been ordained a priest for at least five years to be eligible. And the Pope actually invites priests, based on recommendations of other bishops, to become a bishop. Now below bishops, uh, the second degree, are priests. And that comes from the Greek word presbyteros in the Bible, which means elder. Now, there are diocesan priests and religious priests. So diocesan priests serve in a parish or in a diocesan office under the authority of their bishop. They're responsible for all the souls in the boundary of their church, and they're in union with their other priests and under the authority of their bishop. Religious priests are a little different. They serve in an order, so like Franciscans or Jesuits, Dominicans, and they might serve in a parish, they might serve in a school, a university, a missionary community, um, and they take a vow of obedience to the bishop um, and usually their religious superior. And uh, religious priests in particular take a vow of poverty, but both religious and ministerial priests, diocesan priests, uh, rather, take uh, vows of chastity as well. Um, Eastern Catholic priests, so Catholics in uh, the eastern parts of the world, they can actually be married in their rites um, before they're ordained, but not after. So if they're already ordained, they can't get married. But if they're already married and they want to become a priest in the eastern church, they can actually do that. But Roman Catholic priests uh, cannot be married. You will occasionally meet one who converted from a religion similar to Catholicism or from an eastern rite who was already married and a priest and then becomes a Roman Catholic priest. Um, but it is rare that you will meet someone like that. Um, 
Priests can celebrate all the sacraments except for holy orders. Um, confirmation, however, is generally reserved for the bishop until he get, unless he gives them permission. Um, to become a priest, men usually go to seminary to study and live in community. They learn about the vocation and get used to the way of life. Usually priests receive a bachelor's in philosophy and a master's in divinity, which is a specialized degree in theology. And then they'll spend a year as a pastoral intern at a parish learning what that is like. And then they're usually ordained a deacon for a year and then a priest after a total of eight years of study, uh, unless they already had studied some of those uh, subjects in college or had one of those degrees, then it would be less. Um, and lastly, the lowest order of holy orders, lowest degree, are deacons. And the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonia, which means servant. And in that same first letter of Timothy, there's instructions for deacons. Um, and we actually have the story of the selection of the first seven deacons in history in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6. One of whom was St. Stephen. He was the first saint to be killed for their Christian faith. And we hear about that just a chapter later in Acts, chapter 7. Every single ordained minister is ordained a deacon first. So you don't just immediately become a bishop. You are a deacon, and then you become a priest, and then later on a bishop. Um, those who went to seminary to become priests, they're ordained deacons, and they're called transitional deacons because they're going to be ordained priests later. But there are also permanent deacons, and these are men who are married, and they can be ordained as deacons, but if they're single, once they're ordained a deacon, even if they want to be a permanent deacon, they take a vow of chastity as well. Uh, their job basically is to serve. They technically serve the bishop, and he gives them permission to serve at a particular church or in a particular office. Um, they can confer the sacrament of baptism and marriage. They can assist at mass, but they can't perform the Eucharist. Um, they can preside at funerals, and it's an office of service. Whereas priests and bishops, there is an office of ministry. Deacons will usually study in a diocesan program if they're married, a diocesan program that the bishop oversees for maybe about five years in community. They'll learn theology, be trained in ministry. Now, the sacrament of holy orders was instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. He, Jesus chose 12 apostles, and he gave them very specific authority. And we see who they are in Mark chapter 3. It says, He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them forth to preach and have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, who he named Peter, James, sometimes called James the Greater, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he named Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew, Peter's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel, Matthew, who's sometimes called Levi, Thomas, who's sometimes called Didymus, James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Lesser, Thaddeus, who's sometimes known as Jude, Simon the Cananean, or Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, Jesus gives them power to forgive sins. That was something only God was able to do. And they can now do it by God working through them, just like priests exercise that in reconciliation. They recognized there was a responsibility and there was authority that they had in the office that they carried that they needed to pass on. So when Judas betrays Jesus, there's actually like a vote to replace him in the Acts of the Apostles. It says, it is necessary that one of the men who accompanied us the whole time the Lord Jesus came and went among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day on which he was taken up from us, become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, 
You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take pl the place in this apostolic ministry from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. Then they gave lots to them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was counted with the eleven apostles. So it's clear that Jesus chose twelve specific men to fulfill an office, and those men understood that that needed to be maintained for purposes of secession to pass on that authority that was given to them by Jesus and the Holy Spirit to confer the sacraments. Now the question often comes up, why only men? Why does the church only ordain men to the priesthood? Well, first of all, Jesus chose 12 men. Now, yes, he had a radically countercultural relationship with women. So if he wanted to call women to the priesthood, he certainly could have, and he had a wonderful group of people he could have chosen from. His mother, Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, countless others who were supremely qualified and devoted. But the priesthood is not about qualifications or a particular career path. No one should technically aspire to become a priest. Rather, God calls some men to fulfill that role. So if it were a right, like baptism, we all have the right to be baptized, then yes, everybody should be eligible. But this is a specific job that Jesus established in a specific way. And it's not for all men or any man, but specific men that he continues to choose to, to come drop their nets and become fishers of men. And then the priests, because they act in persona Christi, the person of Christ, they are icons of Christ, walking symbols of Jesus, who himself was a man. And since he chose to set up an office and he invited only men to fill it, we don't have the authority to change it. In fact, Pope John Paul II says that, in order that all doubt may be removed, I declare that the church has no authority whatsoever to confer priestly ordination on women and that this judgment is to be definitively held by all the church's faithful. Now, I would say the same exact thing if he chose 12 women, because we can't change Jesus' mind. However, this does not mean that women could not fill this role if it were open to them. I would, in fact, I would argue that many women would do a better job than many of the priests I've met. Unfortunately, they're very much more empathetic, much more relatable, um, but we cannot make the mistake of thinking that the church is somehow subjugating women or thinks that they have nothing to offer. I mean, have you heard of Mary? Like, we love her. Uh, the most important Christian and saint in history is a woman. The church is called she, the bride of Christ. So there's a marital and kind of covenantal complementarity language that's used. And in fact, in that same document where Pope John Paul II talks about women not being able to be priests, he also says this, the New Testament and the whole history of the church give ample evidence of the presence in the church of women, true disciples, witnesses to Christ in the family and in society, as well as in total consecration to the service of God and of the gospel. By defending the dignity of women and their vocation, the church has shown honor and gratitude for those women who, faithful to the gospel, have shared in every age in the apostolic mission of the whole people of God. They are the holy martyrs, virgins, and mothers of families who bravely bore witness to their faith and passed on the church's faith and tradition by bringing up their children in the spirit of the gospel. And there have also been great female saints who didn't have children, who entered the religious life, or who were single. In high-level positions in the diocese and in the church as a whole uh, that don't need to be occupied by priests are open to both men and women. And Pope Francis in particular has um, brought a lot of women into those positions in the Vatican. But because the priesthood came from Christ with specific instructions, we cannot change his words. Um, we cannot on any other matter for that fact. So only baptized men who are called and found suitable can then be ordained to the sacrament of holy orders. That was what was instituted 
by Christ. And lastly, the sacrament gives grace. The sacrament of holy orders confers an indelible mark, meaning it cannot be removed or repeated. So when a deacon is ordained, he receives that mark. But if that deacon then becomes a priest, that mark remains, but there is a change in the nature of the mark. The same when a man is then ordained a bishop, which each degree gives new graces. So a bishop is given the grace to teach in the name of Christ, to sanctify the church through the celebration of the sacraments. He guides, governs, and defends the church to be a sign of unity. A priest is given the grace to proclaim the gospel and preach, to celebrate the sacraments other than holy orders, and to shepherd the people who are entrusted to him. And a deacon in the Latin church, the Roman church, is ordained to proclaim the gospel and preach. Baptized, assist the bishop or priest in the celebration of the Eucharist, assist and bless marriages, to preside at funerals, as I said, and to serve the community through works of charity. These graces allow them to bring the grace of the other sacraments to all of us. And we, as kingdom priests, share that grace and good news beyond with the world. It is all a ripple effect. It traces its origins back to Jesus Christ himself and the authority he gave Peter as the first pope and the apostles as the first bishops. They ministered to the disciples and their descendants, and our priests and bishops ministered to us. They're served and assisted by deacons. And I just think it's amazing. How amazing is it that such a small group of people changed the entire world? So if you're a man watching this, I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider and be open to the fact that God might be calling you to be a priest or a deacon, just as he's calling some of you women watching to be religious sisters and nuns or devote yourself to the Lord in some other way. It's a radically different way of life, yes, but one that is lived in joyful community, pursuing the one thing, the one person that matters most, Jesus Christ. You don't need to fit some kind of saintly mold the 12 apostles were the most royally unqualified group of people on the planet, but Jesus chose them. He didn't choose the rabbis and influencers of the day. He chose ordinary, messy, confused, and broken people to change the world. Because of Jesus and 12 men, there are now 2.4 billion Christians in the world 2,000 years later. One in every three people. That's incredible. And whatever your calling is in life, know that God can do incredible things through our small offering. But until one out of three people becomes three out of three people being Christian, there is still more to do. So I ask you, how is God calling you? Whether you're a priest, religious sister or brother, married, single, whatever your state in life, he is calling you to a deeper relationship with him and to the service of communion with others, to exercise your kingdom priesthood. So let's pray for our bishops priests and deacons as they exercise their ministry. And though you may not wear the collar, you are a baptized Catholic, meaning that you are a walking symbol of Catholicism. If you are a baptized Catholic, maybe you aren't, but if you are, you are a walking symbol of Catholicism. So let us pray for each other that we would do that well each and every day for his glory, fulfilling our priesthood.